when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne. In this week's episode, we'll be discussing the latest in the coronavirus crisis, including the health of Boris Johnson, who remains in intensive care from the illness, who is taking his place in Downing Street, and how the government is being run in his absence. We'll also be digging into the continued questions about the lockdown, when it will end, how the UK will exit the stringent social distancing measures, and when and how the decisions will be made. Plus, we'll be looking at Keir Starmer's first week as leader of the Labour Party, his new shadow cabinet, the outreach to the UK's Jewish community, and his decision to banish most of the Corbynistas from the front line of the party. I'm delighted to be joined remotely, of course, by our political editor, George Parker, political columnist, Robert Shrimsley, and political correspondent, Laura Hughes. Thank you all for joining. If you find yourself liking this episode of FT Politics, then do subscribe through all the usual channels to receive it every Saturday morning. And thank you very much for sticking with us through these unusual times. We hope that the quality is listable. The main political news story this week, of course, has been about Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister. For the last 11 days, he's been in self-isolation after being tested positive for coronavirus. As far as we were aware, the Prime Minister had mild symptoms of the disease and he continued to work in his flat in number 11 Downing Street, producing a couple of Twitter videos and even popping out onto Downing Street to clap for the NHS two Thursdays in a row. But all that changed last Sunday when the Prime Minister was admitted to St Thomas's Hospital in London. After 24 hours, his condition deteriorated and he was then moved to intensive care where he remains at the time of recording. So George Parker, during the time that Boris Johnson was in self-isolation, as far as we knew, it was very much business as normal. He wasn't appearing at the Downing Street press conferences, but he was working, even though some people in Downing Street do say his workload was lighter. But all that changed last weekend. Yeah, I think you have to draw the conclusion that number 10 were not being entirely frank about the Prime Minister's condition during the nine days before he went into hospital. As you say, they said he was displaying mild symptoms, but they suggested it was business as normal. And he was working from his Downing Street flat. But subsequently, we heard that, as you say, he was um, on lighter duties than might have been expected. And then, of course, the bombshell on Sunday evening that he'd gone into hospital and then the even greater shock the following day that he'd gone into intensive care. And I think at that time, there was a real mood of foreboding in number 10, uh, the quick turn of events and the fact that someone they regarded as their leader, but also someone who was such a force of nature, had been taken into hospital and been laid low in this way. And you know, the disease, as we know, can progress very quickly. And the, the fact that he was in intensive care within 24 hours of going into hospital took everyone by surprise. The more recent news, as we speak at least, is that the Prime Minister is now sitting up in bed, engaging with, with medical staff and his condition appears to be improving rather than deteriorating, which is obviously great news. 
Because, Laura Hughes, there is this question about how much Downing Street did or didn't say about the Prime Minister's health. On the one hand, you could say that it is his private health and that they don't, they're not obliged to tell us anything. On the other hand, in retrospect, it doesn't look as if they were entirely truthful because to go into hospital and then to go into intensive care 24 hours later does suggest that Mr Johnson was quite a lot more ill from coronavirus than had been previously said. Yeah, and it's also possible, though, that Boris Johnson himself was putting on a brave face and keep going on as long as he possibly could, probably felt that, you know, really it's his job to manage this. So you could understand a situation where he sort of kept saying that he was all right and and wanted to manage the show. But eventually when he spoke to his doctors, that they had to progress things quite quickly and everything moved at a pace that perhaps he himself could never have anticipated. So I imagine that that might be an element that's me being forgiving there. But also, I imagine number 10 wanted to balance telling the public what was going on with also, but also trying not to create a sense of panic because I think everyone was really quite flawed by the move that happened so quickly to intensive care. This is somebody that everybody knows and recognises. And for a lot of people, it would have been the first time they actually knew someone that had responded in this way. And he's not that old. He's in his mid-50s. So I think it, it was a bit of a shock. But retrospectively, looking back at this, it, it it did feel as though we were being told that he was absolutely fine for perhaps longer than he really was. Because, Robert, strangely, the folks that I spoke to in government and in Downing Street this week, they were as surprised as anybody else that I think that the Prime Minister's very inner circle were the only ones really aware of his medical condition. And most people in Downing Street, you know, be it on the policy side, the press side, all the day-to-day operational side, they weren't aware of how ill he was because he'd just been trying to get on with it and get through it. And some ministers have said in private, you know, really, he should have taken more time out to focus on his recovery because... Um, you know, it's obviously developed into a very serious situation here. Yes, I think that's right. Although the one thing we do have to remember is that the nature of this disease is that it can turn very fiercely, very, very quickly. So people can seem all right. And then only a few hours later go quite remarkably downhill. So it is possible for Downing Street not exactly to have been lying about his condition, but to have been looking on the bright side more than they they should have been. I think with hindsight, it looks very clear that he also was trying to create this sense that he was still in control all the time, that he was up to running the country and up to running the government through this crisis, when, as you say, it might well have been more prudent to step back quicker, take two or three days to see if he could beat this virus and then return with renewed strength. But then again, since we really don't understand this virus that well yet, it's entirely possible that it would have had the same impact on him regardless of what he did. Absolutely. Now, of course, George, following Mr Johnson's move to hospital and particularly to intensive care on Monday, there's been questions of, is there something of a power vacuum? Because as I said earlier, typically for the British constitution, there's no real formal process for what happens if the prime minister is incapacitated. We dug into this and read the last two examples of this were Harold Macmillan, who was taken for a prostate operation out of Downing Street in the 60s, and Anthony Eden, who had something of a breakdown during the mid-1950s. Very different different times, very different levels of media scrutiny. Uh, And just before Mr Johnson went into intensive care, he handed over the reins to Dominic Raab, saying he could deputise where necessary. But really, he seems to be the de facto acting prime minister for the moment, even if he doesn't have the full authority and the full range of powers the prime minister normally does have. 
Yes, well, we all know the British constitution is notoriously opaque, but it also has the advantage of being quite flexible. And in this case, the power invested in Dominic Raab really comes directly from the fact that the Prime Minister from his hospital bed said, I want Dominic Raab to do this. Now, given the fact that the Prime Minister has just won a very large electoral mandate, given the fact he's quite popular and there's a lot of personal sympathy for him, I think that invests quite a lot of authority in Dominic Raab, at least for the meantime, uh, for a short period of time, certainly for, I would guess, a matter of weeks if necessary. But under the British Constitution, the power of the Prime Minister, if it was Boris Johnson, derives from the Cabinet. The Cabinet is really the decision-making body under the British system. So provided Dominic Raab keeps the Cabinet together and keeps the Cabinet backing him, and he's gone out of his way to assure the Cabinet that he will be taking decisions on a basis of collective responsibility, then I think it is sustainable for a while. But of course, there is a vacuum. We know that the physical building of Number 10 now is stripped of the Prime Minister, um, the Prime Minister's Chief Advisor, Dominic Cummings, uh, his Chief of Staff, Eddie Lister, Sir Edward Lister is not in Downing Street either, he's working from home, we think. And that just leaves Mark Sedwell, the head of the Cabinet, uh, the Cabinet Secretary, the Chief Civil Servant, in the building itself. So clearly there is a vacuum. The one blessing, I suppose, is that a lot of the big decisions relating to the lockdown, relating to the economic response, have been taken. But soon, not not too many days ahead of us, they're going to have to start taking big decisions on how we leave the lockdown. And that's when Dominic Raab will be really tested. Robert, what do you make of this potential prospect of a power vacuum in Downing Street? Because as George said, there's a lot of people physically missing there. But some cabinet ministers we've talked to this week have said, well, you know, the the power of the Prime Minister is political and practical. Political is in that he has authority over the Conservative Party in the House of Commons. We don't know if Dominic Raab has that because it's never been tested and it probably won't be tested because Parliament's not sitting at the moment and we're not entirely sure when it's going to come back. Then the practical power is commanding the civil service and that is the fact that the Queen's asking to lead the government and therefore the machinery of the state is behind them. It seems at the moment we've got this sort of delicate balancing act with Dominic Raab having the practical power given to him by the Prime Minister George just said, but also the fact Mark said what well, is there and trying to keep things moving on. But the only real challenge feels it'll come when a big policy has to be made because the whole direction of the coronavirus strategy has been set by Mr Johnson before he went into hospital. So there's no immediate need to change that. But if it does need to change, that's when it starts to get difficult. Yes, I think that's exactly right. It's the obvious place for problems because he's been given a presiding role rather than the power. What power he has comes from the fact that Boris Johnson gave it to him. Uh, And as you say, until a major policy decision has to be made, it's perfectly reasonable to think the cabinet and the four key figures in the cabinet in this crisis can work things out between them. They also know that nobody's got any appetite and nobody's going to thank any of them for intriguing or infighting while Boris Johnson is away and that it would reflect very, very badly on them. So I think there'll be a desire to be careful and be collegiate. But the first point when there's a major policy divide, the person in charge would have to adjudicate, say, between the Treasury and the Department of Health about the degree of lockdown. Or equally, if there's a desire to bring somebody else into the inner circle uh, because you feel they could add something. We've heard talk, for example, of an idea of a minister being made directly responsible for testing. Again, Boris Johnson could do that immediately with a click of his fingers. Uh, Dominic Raab would struggle to do that, um, and he would have to get full collegiate support from the rest of the cabinet. And we know there has been um, infighting, so I think it's very, very difficult. It's not a long-term sustainable position. And it's also the case that it's certainly 
questionable whether Dominic Raab would emerge as the figure who replaced Boris Johnson if it was necessary to do so in, in, in a temporary way, but for a longer period of time. So he doesn't have that much authority at the moment, and he's going to have to tread very carefully. But equally, those around him are also going to have to tread very carefully or get the blame for adding to the scale of the crisis. And George, there's been a lot of discussion about this quad that has emerged this week of four ministers who, in the absence of Mr Johnson, are overseeing things. So Mr Raab is one member, the other is the Chancellor Rishi Sunak, the Health Secretary Matt Hancock and Michael Gove, the Cabinet Office Minister. They've all been quite central to the government's coronavirus preparations. They're all part of this 9.15 War Cabinet meeting that happens every morning, which Mr Raab is chairing. And they're obviously the most prominent and powerful people in this government. The challenge is there are splits within that quad because, as Robert was just saying there, you've got on the one hand Rishi Sunak, who is speaking up for the Treasury, who've always got their eyes on money and how they're going to continue financing these very expensive economic packages. On the other hand, you've got Matt Hancock, who's primarily concerned with making sure the health service survives and he's going to want the lockdown, for example, which we'll come on to in a moment, to go on for as long as possible. And then you've got Michael Gove, who does what Michael Gove does, which is to keep the wheels of government turning while also promoting the interests of Mr. Gove? <laughs> well, yes, I mean, there are tensions there. I mean, inevitably, there are tensions between the Treasury and the Department of Health. And in a way, that's how good government works. You have people representing different interests. But nevertheless, there's an inherent tension there. We hear there's tension between Mr. Gove and Mr. Hancock, who both have kind of joint responsibility for the practical response uh, to coronavirus and getting equipment into the right place at the right time. And there have been some tensions there. But generally, speaking to members of the cabinet outside of that quad arrangement, they seem to think that the this 915 meeting, COVID-19 committee you're referring to there, is functioning reasonably well, that the minutes are distributed around the cabinet, people are kept abreast of what's going on. So I think provided Dominic Raab handles this well and makes sure the wider cabinet is involved, I think it's a sustainable thing. And I think also, frankly, any minister who thinks it's a good idea to rock the boat or pursue their personal ambitions at the time when the Prime Minister's in intensive care would be doing something incredibly stupid, both in terms of the country, but in terms of their political careers. Absolutely. Now, Laura, let's come on to the lockdown, which is coming up for its three-week renewal just after the Easter weekend. And um, What's the sense we're getting? Or is it going to be renewed? Is it going to be ended? And what's the thinking inside government? Because at the moment, it doesn't really seem to feel as if there's a clear strategy to get the UK out of these very stringent measures. Well, no. And Neil Ferguson from Imperial, who is really advising the government, gave a fascinating interview with our colleague um, for FT Alphaville, where he basically admitted there isn't a strategy at the moment. And they're continuing to look at the science and follow the examples of other countries. But roughly, we know that it is it is about doing a lot more testing and potentially using technology. We know that they're thinking maybe about letting young people out first back into the economy so they can get working because A, they are least likely to pick up coronavirus and B, they're the ones who are economically suffering the most at the moment. But we have this sort of three-week deadline coming up that the Prime Minister promised and there will be a decision that has to be made as to whether or not we extend the lockdown. But I mean, I would be willing to bet a lot of money this three-week lockdown is going to be extended, possibly for another three weeks, and then again reviewed or even longer. We've already had Nicola Sturgeon speaking on Thursday morning, sort of preempting what the, the government might decide, saying that, you know, we're starting to see these measures working. So now is not the time 
to end this. And there's a meeting of COBRA on Thursday. But again, we're still not really expecting an official announcement to be made until next week. Instead, we're going to see sort of an advertising campaign, PR campaign by the government urging, begging, pleading with people to stay at home over a, a very sunny Easter bank holiday weekend, which is going to be very difficult. But the message is going to be that it's starting to work stay at home and wait for an announcement next week, which it, 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 it's highly likely that this is going to carry on for another few weeks, potentially even a, an extra month or two. Because Robert, it feels quite odd to me we're even talking about the lockdown ending. You know, I spoke to one cabinet minister this week who said they were amazed at how successful it had been. Because if we recall, when Boris Johnson initially requested people to uh, stay at home, not go to pubs or restaurants, people didn't take much notice. Then the Prime Minister said, OK, you now have to do this. And in that sort of British sense of just getting on with it, that's what people have done. And by every metric, the lockdown and the social distancing has been a success. It has flattened the curve based on what we've heard from the scientists so far. But we're still not at the peak of this outbreak yet, that there was talk it might be this weekend. There's now talk the peak is going to be at some point into next week. And it feels like you can't even talk about loosening the lockdown until you get past that crucial moment when cases and deaths have reached their highest levels. I think that's absolutely right. And I think the government knew, even when it put the three weeks review date on the original lockdown, that the chances of us lifting it in three weeks were were very slight. But I think they were concerned to give people a sense of a moment when it might end, even if they didn't really believe it would happen. Uh, but as you said, the country has by and large accepted and bought into this. It believes in it. And I think People are also scared of this virus. I mean, one aspect of um, Boris Johnson being hit so badly with it is that it's brought home to a lot of people that this really isn't something that only affects the old and the unwell, that anybody can get on the wrong side of it. So I think that in that respect has made it clear to people, this is not a joke. This is something that has to be taken very seriously. And the lockdown is to be observed. As you say, I think there's no chance of it being lifted early next week, not least because the government hasn't yet really articulated a clear strategy for how it would go about lifting it. And what are the parameters and what are the, the different stages of it? And I think the first step, and the, when we'll know that it's a serious possibility, is when they start saying, these are the points we'll be looking for to lift it a bit here. If this happens, we can ease it a bit there. So I don't think there's going to be a, a one day where all the doors fly open and everything goes back to normal. I think it will be staggered over the course of time as the peak is passed. George, one indication that we've had this week has been that schools may be something that could reopen first, and that within government, it's schools and the construction industry are their primary target here. And it feels like there's been some talk of could they do it region by region, but that doesn't exactly go with the whole government's levelling up approach, which is still, I guess, economic strategy after this crisis. But by looking at certain sectors, it feels like that's where we might be looking in terms of how the lockdown could be lifted when they look at it, which feels, based on the conversations this week, it's going to be more towards the beginning of May than the middle of April. Yeah, I think the lockdown is in place for, as Laura was saying, for a few weeks to come, for sure. And there's a feeling in Downing Street that the public don't even really want to talk about coming out of the lockdown. It's quite interesting. The psychology of the country seems to be that they're fully bought into the idea that we need to stay indoors, we need to protect the NHS. And they think it's almost distasteful to talk about anything else at the moment when the country's still facing this emergency. So as a result, a lot of these discussions are taking place behind closed doors and in ministerial committees. Um, But the three ways out of the lockdown that are being considered involve, number one, population. In other words, can certain demographic groups like the younger people you're mentioning there, could they be allowed back into the workforce first? 
Then there's a question about sectors. Can some sectors like manufacturing, like construction, lead the way out of this? And it was quite interesting this week that Alok Sharma, the business secretary, issued guidance to those sectors saying, look, you don't have to strictly observe the two-metre separation rule. Um, You should try to do it if you can. But if you can't, carry on working, but make sure you wash your hands and avoid face-to-face contact as much as you can. So the government there trying to be a bit more flexible. And then the third option they're looking at is the idea of geographical um, relaxation in different regions. But as you say, up until now, they've tried to do this on a UK-wide basis. So I think a demographic and sectoral approach will probably be at the heart of this. But then, of course, we get a much wider question about how you accompany that with testing and getting the testing capacity up is going to be absolutely vital as we start to ease the lockdown. Well, Laura, testing is obviously your favourite topic to write about. Where are we on testing at the moment? Because we've got this huge 100,000 tests a day targeted by the end of April. This week, it's been gradually rising a little bit, but we're still nowhere near that big number that was promised by Matt Hancock last week. No, we're still sort of hovering around the 15,000 tests a day mark. Um, Interestingly, an American company was talking this morning and saying that it was realistic for the government to start doing 100,000 tests a day and that they would be able to supply them. And they made the point that they actually had all the reagents that you would need to make these testing kits and that they hadn't been impacted by the global shortages. Instead, they were hinting that it was a lab capacity here in the UK that was actually slowing things down. And that's something the government seems to still be working on. But, you know, when you when you look at the fact that there are 65-ish million people in this country, even doing 100,000 tests a day means that we could be testing people for sort of up to 20 months before we're all done. It's still not completely clear to me exactly how this is going to progress, how they're going to build on the numbers. Are we going to see mass community testing? Could it be devolved again? Could it be restricted just to different areas where we think that there might be peaks of the virus popping up. Um, But again, still NHS workers are not getting the tests that they need on a daily basis. And the government know that they are under huge amounts of pressure here, because if you do look at what other countries around the world are doing, they are doing mass testing on a vast scale, and it really is a big part of their strategy. Interestingly, Chris Whitty, the chief medical officer in a press conference this week, was the first person to to really admit that we are looking at Germany, who are doing 50,000 tests a day, and we're trying to learn from them. And I think that gives us a little indication of the fact that we are moving to ramping up testing. And we know that that is what we have to do, but still not quite the infrastructure there for us to be able to deliver it. And finally, for a different topic now, the Labour Party. Keir Starmer was elected as leader of the opposition, as expected last Saturday, and he's moved quite swiftly to distancing himself from the leadership of Jeremy Corbyn. There was a big clear out from the Shadow Cabinet and several other key moves. Robert Shimsy, let's just begin with the Shadow Cabinet there, that there was so much speculation about who might be brought back, who might not be brought back, how left or right would it feel. What's your feeling of the new team that Keir Starmer's put together, which will include some names? Names that I imagine a lot of listeners will never have heard of. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And most obvious one is Annalise Dodds, who's the new shadow chancellor, who I don't think will be well known outside of Westminster. I think the general tone of the shadow cabinet that Keir Starmer has created is it's one that's attempting to be unified and unified by not having in the most 
obviously factional people from any side of the party. So you're absolutely right. He cleared out almost all of the Corbynites and almost all the Corbynite defenders. You know, John McDonnell and Diane Abbott said they were going to stand down anyway. But he cleared out Ian Lavery, Richard Bergen, Dawn Butler, almost all the people who Jeremy Corbyn trusted to go on television and defend him are the ones who've gone. Uh, but he's also not found room. And some people were surprised for some of the people on the sort of Blair Brownite side of the party, be it Jess Phillips, who had a tilt at the leadership, or more long-serving figures like Yvette Cooper and Hillary Benn. He's gone for very much what one might call a Miliband-ish team, including bringing back Ed Miliband as the spokesman on the environment business. So he's gone for that sort of soft left, not boat-rocking team, hopefully a more um, competent group. Because the one thing to remember about a lot of the people in the shadow cabinet under Jeremy Corbyn is they weren't that good. Uh, aside from a couple of figures like John McDonnell, the shadow chancellor, and maybe Keir Starmer himself, you had a group of people who were solid and quite a lot of people who really weren't very good. So I think the first thing he wanted to do was simply restore a level of competence and ability to his top team, the kind of people who can hold what is essentially still a very green government to account. Because, George, when you look at it, really, I think it's hard to say anything else, but it was a bit of a clear out of Corbynites there that, you know, people like Richard Bergen, Barry Gardner, they were all gone from the shadow cabinet. But then also Seamus Milne, who was Jeremy Corbyn's closest advisor and sort of strategy and media, he's also gone as well. And it looks very much as if Kistarmer is trying to draw a clear line between the Corbyn era and his era. Yeah, I think that's definitely true, that they it was a it was a cull of the Corbynites without a shadow of a doubt. I think Keir Starmer clearly wanted to make a break with what's gone on in the last four years. I think the one consolation to people on the left of the Labour Party is that he didn't accompany the cull with a return to sort of the new Labour era. I think some of the prominent people from the, the Blair-Brown era weren't brought back in. So he went for a kind of soft left lineup, a bit more like the approach that Ed Miliband adopted between 2010 and 2015, or maybe sort of more like a Neil Kinnock style. So I think he's, it's quite a clever reach off in that sense, I think, because he's, he's tried to be unfactional. He's tried to bring through a few people, what you might call clean skins, as you say, people that aren't really well known beyond Westminster, or even at Westminster, to be frank. And it's very much his own team. And there are no big figures there at the top to challenge Keir Starmer's authority. So I think we'll see this, the Labour Party remade very much in Keir Starmer's image. Yes, and Laura Fan, the other thing that Kirstarm has done is to have a big reach out to the Jewish community that anti-Semitism has been one of the most problematic parts of Jeremy Corbyn's leadership and he never really got to grips with it. But just three days in to his leadership, Kirstarm has tackled the issue head on. He held a virtual meeting with um, key figures from the UK's Jewish community, mainstream figures, we should say. And, you know, their response was he's done more in four days than Jeremy Corbyn did in four years. Yeah, I mean, it was an extraordinary response, actually, that statement they put out, really, you know, having a pop one more time at Jeremy Corbyn, who saw his whole premiership dogged by allegations of anti-Semitism. And at the heart of this is really that the party's response to allegations that were made. Lots of Jewish groups saying that they weren't being dealt with, responded to quickly, and accusing Jeremy Corbyn himself of making inappropriate comments over the last few years. And what Keir Starmer did, which I think was really well received, is he's promised an independent complaint system for processing complaints. He said that all Labour Party staff are going to have training. And he's also promised to cooperate with this investigation, which is being carried out by Britain's uh, human rights watchdog. And they're looking at whether or not the party did respond to allegations in a suitable way. He said that all pending 
and ongoing investigations needed to be on his desk next week. And he's really trying to shift the tone, start a new chapter and clear up what has been just a really messy, messy couple of years. And yeah, I think it shows he's serious and... Hopefully we won't have to write about this issue for a very long time because these sort of nasty incidences are are going to be dealt with properly and the Jewish community are going to feel like the party is once and for all actually listening, actually taking these allegations seriously and hopefully this will sort of bring an end to it. And finally, very briefly, Robert, um, what Keir Starmer's had some conversations with Boris Johnson about attending meetings and hearing what's going on with the coronavirus crisis. This prospect of government of national unity has reared its head with a new poll showing that over 60% of Britons um, support that. Do you think there's any prospect of that? And do you think Sir Keir's got the approach right with the government and the crisis? Uh, well, I certainly didn't think there was any prospect of it before Boris Johnson was taken ill, because I don't actually see a real need for it. You know, we're not at a traditional war where it shows the enemy that the whole country stands united. The government has the numbers to get its legislation through, so it doesn't need the extra votes in Parliament. And there's actually a use, as we can see, in having a constructive but questioning opposition, briefed in, able to understand what's going on, but also able to raise issues. So in general, my instinct has been that it's not been necessary to have a government of national unity. Of course, if the prime minister is incapacitated for a very long time, that is the one thing that could change the calculation on that. And I think were it to become something that was offered, uh, the Labour Party would find it very difficult to refuse to participate. But at the moment, I still don't see why we have to go there. And that's it for this week's episode of FT Politics. Thank you very much as ever to George, Robert and Law for joining us. In the meantime, if you like what you've heard and like to see some more FT journalism, then do take a look at our latest subscription offers, which you can find at ft.com forward slash offer. Plenty of our coronavirus journalism is also free to read if you'd like a flavour of some of the articles we've discussed. FT Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder. Until next time, thanks for listening, keep safe and keep well. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.